Subfreaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. Very important rip. I think one of the most important rips we've had in quite some time. Logan, what are your thoughts? We're going to die at some point. Don't say that. It's obvious. Did you get any knowledge out of this episode? Stuff I hear my brother talk about a lot. All right, good. All right. Some confirmation and some knowledge that his brother spreading to him. I sat down with Lee Slusher, founder of BT Consulting, ex-military, ex-intelligence. I know what you're thinking, freaks. Oh my God, what are you doing? You're infiltrated. I think if you listen to the episode, you'll you'll appreciate what Lee's putting down. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at River. River. Many things. A Bitcoin company built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. They do it the right way. They build their own infrastructure and they have mining. River mining is a good way to diversify your sat streams. Uh, if you want to get daily Bitcoin deposits via mining, you can go to river.com slash TFTC, set up an account, and then go to river.com slash mining. It's an all one mining solution. They're going to manage the entire process for you from getting the ASICs, hosting, servicing the ASICs, maintenancing the ASICs. Uh, miners can go live within a few days. So if you if you buy an ASIC via River, you'll be up and hashing and streaming sats to your River account within days. You can track your performance on the River app or on desktop. Uh, it supports institutions or private clients. So whether you want to buy a single miner or a fleet of miners, River is here to do it for you. Uh, it's a hassle-free way to mine. It's a beautiful thing. Diversify strat scene, sat streams. Who's calling me? Not right now. I'm recording ads. Um, go to river.com slash TFTC. Set up an account. Buy Bitcoin. Mine Bitcoin. Build on the Lightning Network. It's a beautiful thing. This trip was also brought to you by our good friends down the hall. Unchained. Unchained.com is their website. And they, they bring you financial services revolving around custody. Multi-sig custody. Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties are extremely powerful. They help you distribute risk and eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. So if you're a Bitcoiner that has Bitcoin, but you're holding it on exchange, uh, you want to get into self-custody and Unchained's Vault product is a beautiful solution, a multi-sig solution to that. If you want to buy Bitcoin too, you shouldn't be holding it on exchange. You should buy it via Unchained's trading desk. Uh, you set up your vault and then you buy via Unchained's trading desk. It goes straight to your vault. You don't have to pull out any wallets. You don't have to worry about it sitting on Unchained's exchange. They don't have an exchange. They simply help you buy Bitcoin and send it into multi-sig cold storage. It's a beautiful thing. Go to Unchained.com slash trading. Set up an account on their trading desk. Check it out. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at CrowdHealth. Health insurance sucks. It's terrible. It's expensive. It's opaque. It's impersonal. You really don't know what you're buying into. Uh, CrowdHealth is here to change that. It's not health insurance. It's a different way of paying for your health care. It's crowdfunded health care. Uh, me and my family, we're on CrowdHealth. We were on Cobra. Cobra is very expensive. This is literally a third of the cost for our whole family. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> what you do is you sign up for a CrowdHealth account. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Sign up. You'll get a deal using that code. Uh, once you sign up, you begin paying monthly payments. They build up in a health account. Uh, if you ever have a health event and you need to go to the doctor, you get the bill, you bring it to Crowd Health, they go to the doctor, they negotiate prices lower. Uh, and then you pay the first $500 of that bill, and the rest gets crowdfunded by the Crowd Health community. 
100% of bills have been funded to date. Important to note, I can't guarantee that, but it's working flawlessly so far. They also have a Bitcoin community where you'll build up your health account. Uh, and after a certain amount of months of building that up, you'll put dollars in that account and a portion of your monthly payment will go into Bitcoin as well. So you can stack sats alongside that dollar account. It's a beautiful thing. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Cheaper. If you're unemployed and you got push to Cobra, uh, this is a much better option. More personal, cheaper, in a sovereign way to take care of your healthcare. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Bitcoin Talent Co. A Bitcoin recruiting firm built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. If you're a company in the space looking for talent to help you build out your little corner of the Bitcoin standard, go to bitcointalent.co, tell them the TFTC sent you, get onboarded with them, they'll understand your needs. They know they're Bitcoiners, so they know the difference between what you're gonna need, whether it be at the lightning layer, the mining layer, uh, the key lever layer, security layer. They, they know Bitcoin inside and out. They'll understand your needs and go find you the talent that you need. Excuse me, burping. They also, if you're a company, they have a great internship program launching this summer. That's another reason to get set up with them. If you're looking for interns that are Bitcoiners looking to help out in the space over this summer, they just launched that intern in, uh, initiative, which should be going live in weeks. So hurry up, get onboarded there, get some good Bitcoin interns onto your team. Uh, so go to bitcointalent.co. Likewise, if you're looking to get into the space, uh, you're not in, you want to work in Bitcoin, hit them up as well. Get your resume in there. Tell them what you're looking for and they'll try to place you at a job. Go to bitcointalent.co and enjoy this rip with Lee. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Lee Slusher, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marty. Good to be here. It's good to have you on. Uh, Dave Collum DM'd me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, you have to reach out to this guy, Lee. I think he's got a very interesting perspective on the world, very interesting background. So I dove into your Substack, read a bunch of your Twitter page, and I, I definitely agree with him. At first, with your Twitter handle, uh, BT Consulting, I thought it was BTC. I thought you had a, a Bitcoin tilt to it, but... Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no, unfortunately not. I had created another company uh, in a different state before I knew I would be moving to Virginia. And uh, I put all kinds of thought into it, like, oh, I'm a writer, so I'll call it Sumerian Consulting because, you know, the Sumerians invented language. And then when I moved, it was just easier to create a new company altogether. And I said, how oh, the hell with it? I don't want to put another all this thought into a new name. And I said, BT is in about time. <laughs> so that's, that's the whole origin story of the day. It has nothing to do with Bitcoin. <laughs> and so I guess to jump into it before we talk into like the wider geopolitical landscape right mm -hmm. now, I think talk a little bit about your background, sure. where you came from and why you decided to start this consult consulting firm. Yeah, I started my career about 25 years ago in the U.S. Army, and I was what's called a cryptologic linguist. So I had to study foreign languages and cryptography, and then I worked in signals intelligence and electronic warfare. So I got to study uh, Russian, Serbo-Croatian, and then after 9-11, uh, Dari, which is Afghan Farsi. And after I left the military, I continued to work in the Defense Department in various capacities. 
doing intelligence work, uh, sometimes for the intelligence community directly, but much of it for an army organization that's now deactivated, uh, known as the Asymmetric Warfare Group. And I had the opportunity to do um, basically both real world intelligence operations and the strategic stuff. So in terms of the real world stuff, I deployed to Afghanistan four times, once to Iraq. Uh, and in terms of the strategic stuff, I wrote national intelligence assessments, mainly about things like foreign military capabilities, irregular warfare, that sort of thing. Uh, and with that background, I was able to go do things that I found a, a bit more interesting. I ended up uh, working in Taiwan off and on for a few years as the architect of an effort to re revamp their defense planning. And uh, we can get into that in a little bit. I also was in Ukraine in 15 as part of the team that uh, assessed the Ukrainian military for future security cooperation. Uh, I've written a bunch uh, for the Defense Department about how Russia took Crimea, Russia's capabilities, all sorts of things like that. And um, I've worked with a bunch of NATO countries in Europe and in Afghanistan and here in the States. And about five years ago, I started my own consulting company. And uh, initially with some legacy kind of defense clients, but mainly now going more into the private sector, uh, the real private sector, not the, the defense contracting private sector. Um, and last year I started uh, my own Substack, which is a deep dive with these leisure. So happy to take it wherever you'd like to go. Yeah, no, we mentioned this before we hit record, but diving into your Substack and looking at your Twitter, <clears throat> having been in the intelligence community for as long as you were, it seems that you've broken off and you're going a bit against the grain of the mainstream. You may not ag completely agree with the strategy that's being employed by the U S particularly. I th I think it yeah, that, that's correct. I, in fact, I, I disagree entirely. I've written about this for many years now. Uh, and even it, especially when um, Russia annexed Crimea, they invaded and annexed Crimea and then the war in Donbass started. This was 2014. That's when the U.S. I think reawoken and started paying attention again to Russia because the focus had been elsewhere. It had been on all of this global war on terrorism stuff. It had been focused on this pivot to Asia that Obama wanted. But then here was Russia again. And by this point, a lot of the people who had expertise and language skills had already retired or passed away. There weren't that many of us, but I was there and I got to do a lot of the work. And from very early on, uh, whenever... I or anyone else I saw tried to explain what Russia thought, uh, its policies, like what it really could, could do realistically, it would result in raised eyebrows or, uh, you know, head nods. There was this really cartoonishly two-dimensional view of Russia, of what it wanted. Everything was, you know, this kind of Boris and Natasha sort of nonsense. And that path has led us to where we are now. Um, that. I've written a lot on my Substack about uh, the war in Ukraine. Rubble and rhetoric is the, the big piece that's gotten the most views, which basically says that this war, in a war between Russia and Ukraine, Russia wins easily. In a proxy war between NATO and Russia in Ukraine, Russia wins eventually, but with a lot more death and destruction, and mostly for Ukraine. And none of it needed to happen. And I was just bewildered over the past uh, year, nearly year and a half, well, even longer than that, when the current administration came in, they started talking about Ukraine and NATO, and it was Biden and Harris and Blinken and uh, Austin, all of these people. And I thought, like, what on earth are they doing? Like, are, are they trying to, to start a war? And when the war eventually started, I think a lot of people forget 
our leaders were saying that Russia takes Kiev in a weekend, right? Like this, this proxy war, at least in my view, is largely a reaction. And that makes things much more dangerous because it's not part of, you know, we did from 2014 to 2022 build up this massive Ukrainian force. I'm well aware of that. It had some role in the early days of it. But uh, the response seemed very ad hoc to me. And we're playing chicken with, uh, first of all, with a country that has nuclear weapons. And secondly, over something that really isn't in our national interest at all. And it's, it's doing all sorts of things. I mean, it's killing hundreds of thousands of people. It's using up all of our munitions. It's causing a lot of discord within Western alliances. I mean, we see many weekends, we see these massive protests all across Europe, like get out of NATO, you know, end the war, at least talk about peace, these kinds of things. But the people at the helm don't appear to be interested in any of that. But they can only keep that up for so long because reality is, is coming back around to hit them in the face. And so I think they're looking for, well, in the, in the piece in rubble and rhetoric, I explained how a series of excuses that I think these, these leaders will employ when, after Russia essentially achieves all of its goals in, in Ukraine. Um, and I think right now what we're witnessing through the press is the white house trying to desensitize the population to the fact that the outcome is not going to be the one they had promised. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. And as it comes along, they keep, you know, like early in the year, there was that massive meeting at Ramstein in Germany of, of all the nations supporting Ukraine. And they pledged this huge weapons package, which we were told from, you know, by all sorts of people was going to be decisive. And it was going to, you know, not just that it was going to push the Russians back, but it might even allow them to take Crimea. I mean, just all of this fanciful nonsense. Well, a few months later, it's, Ooh, man, maybe we can't keep up our defense production or our defense industrial base isn't sufficient to support this high intensity industrial warfare period and or to do uh, to supply our own needs. You know, we can't do both. And then now the message is, well, this this upcoming counteroffensive is make or break. Like they're just slow walking it to sensitize everybody that it's, it's not going to work out. And when it doesn't work out, I think we're going to see some variation of the various types of excuses I, I wrote about in the concluding section of uh, rubble and rhetoric. Um, but I'd like to back up just a moment. I think broadly speaking, there are two possibilities going forward. One is that there is some sort of direct Western intervention, not the funding of a proxy war as we've seen thus far, but an actual direct intervention, be it from NATO or some sort of coalition of the willing. This is the worst case scenario. If this happens, all bets are off uh, and the potential for nuclear escalation is certainly there. Then the other possibility is for Russia to win decisively enough militarily to really set the terms for peace. Because if we look at any talk of peace, there were various points when Kiev uh, seemed open to it, but the West uh, basically stopped it at every turn and they started, and everybody started saying really crazy things like, well, a precondition for negotiations is that Russia were, uh, simply gets out of Ukraine. You know, not only that it returned to its pre-February 22 boundaries, but that it get out of uh, Crimea as well. Well, this was never going to happen. So in effect, this was a refusal to negotiate. And so now, um, you know, Russia is systematically destroying the Ukrainian military and much more of Ukraine, despite the, the nonsense that we see in the press about shortages and dysfunction and all of this, they're doing quite well. Um, and they're being patient, which is the, the smart thing to do. They're not rushing in. They're building up an army 
not just to to achieve their goals in Ukraine, but because they too are worried about a Western intervention. So their defense industrial base is in full swing. They're mobilizing. They have hundreds of thousands of people presently in the field. And that's not just uh, to crush Ukraine and to, to achieve their objectives there, but it's also that they're on guard for a potential Western intervention. This is all very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, it seems extremely dangerous. And as an American citizen who's extremely online has been following this since the beginning. I completely agree. It seems like the mainstream media and this current administration is completely trying to gaslight the American people about the situation over there and the status of the Ukrainian army versus Russia. Right. And I think it's important to go back to like 2014 because that's another thing that people like to gaslight others about, which is you have the videos or the pictures, no, the videos of like Lindsey Graham and John McCain mm-hmm. uh, saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to build up your army and you're going to go defeat Russia. And then you have Victoria Newland in the mix, really throwing um, uh, her weight around in that part of the, uh, the world. And what leading up to February of last year, like what were the options that we had and like what actually led it to the point where Russia felt compelled to invade? It's, it's a long slide. I mean, even before Crimea. So you have to look a, a real brief summary of, of some of the key points since the Soviet Union collapsed, right? The 90s were basically this Wild West period. Uh, there was very weak governance. Russia was involved in one and then a second war in Chechnya. Uh, it, there was a lot of organized crime. The oligarchs were taking over. In came Putin, and by about the mid-2000s, he had reigned in the oligarchs um, in various ways, but he basically brought them to heel. He was restoring some order, uh, and and once he had the his domestic house in order sufficiently, he turned his attention elsewhere. He started resuming the long-range bomber flights uh, out of Russia along uh, Ukraine. He did all sorts of things. Uh, there their, uh, the Russian view is not, is not a mystery. I think we get when I when I say things like cartoonishly two dimensional, what I mean is we think of the Russians that in a way that everything is a lie, everything is subterfuge. Now, no doubt they are masters at deception, but that doesn't mean that everything they say is nonsense. And we have to find a way to figure out some baseline of what they think and what they want. And the way that I've done that successfully is you look at a handful of different things. Russia has uh, just many voluminous public policy documents, often that are translated into English. So that's what their, and then that's what their official policy is. Then they have, for example, key speeches from leaders, and then they have things like defense appropriation. So in other words, over time, is their message consistent and are they putting their money where their, their mouth is, so to speak? And they were doing that. But the West uh, with the U.S. at the helm was really blind to this. So I, I think there's some disagreement um, even among people who agree with me on all sorts of other related topics as to whether you know the the west has been out to destroy russia all along now my view from having worked in government and just from looking at the situation analytically is that up until about 2014 we didn't really care Uh, you know putin on for his part he was kind of consolidating and starting to reassert himself abroad you know we have the georgia war we have all sorts of things like that but nobody was really paying attention outside of these really niche circles like mine. Um, 
and now what we ended up with was uh, some people think that there was this intentional plan to destroy Russia. But my view is basically everything I saw was our leaders saw Russia as a, a sort of semi-civilized hinterland that provided resources and the occasional headache. And the only real policy was to maximize the former and minimize the latter. It, we, the Western order was dominant. We were going to do what we were going to do, and they were just going to take it. So it's an issue of motive, not that I think we were bent on destroying Russia, but that we just said, well, they can't really do anything. What are they going to do about it? I mean, if you look at the 2008 Georgia war, despite all the many warnings, despite things being written in policy documents and, and included in key speeches from, from significant leaders, no one in the West really objected to Russia having the Sochi Olympics in 2008. And then shortly thereafter, they conducted a war like right next door in Georgia. So it's that kind of disconnect. I don't think the plan was destruction. But then came the coup in 2014. And let, let's call it what it was. It was absolutely a coup. Uh, I think I've seen over the past, whatever, 14, 15 months, I've seen a lot of people reference the electoral maps in Ukraine, right, to show the sort of the pro-Western and, and the pro-Russian sides. And it has been used for both sides to say, oh, see, you know, we, we didn't understand them. And, and on another side, people say, no, no, that's just democracy. You know, the, the side that wins gets to decide things. Well, what those people misunderstand is that the things that have been ongoing in Ukraine for quite some time, but uh, most especially since 2014, are things that under other circumstances our government would consider ethnic cleansing. Uh, you know, this de-Russification campaign of, of telling people that they, they shouldn't speak Russian, the renaming of towns. I mean, we've heard uh, for months now about Bakhmut in uh, Eastern, you know, in Donbass. That's not even its regular name. I mean, it was renamed in 2016. So there's this campaign to systematically excise the, the Russianness out, out of that part of society, even though huge swaths of Ukraine are Ukrainian in name only. I mean, I, I've had many Russian friends over the years whose families kind of are from both of those regions. And every time we met, we spoke Russian and they seem just like the, the other Russians I knew. It's, it's a, this system has been ongoing for, for a long time. And um, I'm sorry, I'll pause there. No, I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's really perplexing because again, going back to like the mainstream narrative here, bring up the Asmov battalion, you bring up Donbass and you bring up the points that you just mentioned, like, Hey, it seems like there is some form of ethnic cleansing or sure. at the very least some prejudice that's going on or people are being singled out and, uh, isolated and picked on and, uh, attempted to get thrown out of the country. And the media just wants to focus on like, no, Russia, Russia, man, bad. Like this is, yeah. this is not happening, but, and that's been very confusing because is it you see stuff on social media and they'll be like, no, this is like one off. It's not as big as they're portraying uh, the asthma battalion specifically. Um, and like, no, there's no ethnic cleansing going on. Like Russia's just being a bully. But it seems like from what you're describing, it, it is not the case. Well, if people think it's ethnic cleansing or not, we, we can put the definition aside and just talk about things that have happened. They're forcing people to speak one language and not their native one. They're renaming their towns. They're shutting their churches. There's outright animosity. So it's not simply that, you know, there, there was a pro-Western side and a pro-Russian side and, and the former won out in Soviet, that's democracy. There really is a, a lot of violence and tension there. 
when I was in Kiev in 15, um, as part of this team to evaluate the Ukrainians, my hotel was more or less across the street from the headquarters of the Azov Battalion. And they left nothing to the imagination. I mean, they basically looked like World War II reenactors. And they get a lot of attention now, but there, there are a bunch of other uh, similar groups. Now, what happened? Ukraine had to incorporate them into its formal military, into the National Guard, because they needed the fighters. Like, I want to dwell on this point for, for just a moment. When people talk about 2014 and the shift, uh, something that gets glossed over is the difference between the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Interior. Now, here in the U.S., the Department of the Interior deals with national parks and national resources and stuff like that. In most countries, the Interior Ministry provides a security function whether it's anywhere from national police to a paramilitary force like France's gendarmerie or all the way up to an actual military force. So like many of the Russians that we saw fighting in the two Chechen wars from the late 90s to the early 2000s weren't actually in the Russian military, that is the DOD, the MOD. They were actually interior ministry forces, right? Even though they had tanks, artillery, helicopters. So in Ukraine, uh, after are you familiar with the Budapest memorandum, like Basically, there were some security guarantees mm -hmm. to you. So they gave up their nuclear weapons and they weren't supposed to be the subject of military or financial or economic coercion. So the Ukrainian military from that point in the mid uh, in the early 90s, all the way through 2014, it wasn't meant to fight anybody because who was the enemy? So all the resources went not to the MOD, not to the military, but they went to the Ministry of Interior Forces that basically uh, in most of these Eastern, former Eastern Bloc countries, they provide regime protection. They're Praetorian guards. Uh, not to say that they don't have a legitimate security function, but the Ukrainian military was decrepit. It was the Soviet legacy that served mainly as a jobs program, uh, but it wasn't expected to fight anyone. And that's one of the reasons why it was so easy for, for Russia to do what it did in 2014. But the shift was... U.S. security cooperation up until that point had been with, with the Interior Ministry forces and at a very low level. And the shift in 2014-2015 was to switch to the actual military, the, the force that was designed to fight someone else and not to keep security, uh, to maintain security in, in the interior. And so that's something that happened there that I think Russia could not mistake in any way, right? I mean, you used to work with the, the Interior Ministry, sure, that's fine, but now you're building up this massive army. And that can only have one purpose. Yeah. Um, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's so sad too, because it does seem like, I mean, it is a proxy war. It seems mm -hmm. like the U S and its allies in the West are just using Ukrainian citizens as cannon fodder, essentially with this measuring contest with Russia, this, this flex on the international stage. And I think I'd really like to get, your perspective on like the current state of the Ukrainian army, like are the rumors that they're sending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops to the front lines just to be slaughtered within hours true. Yeah, they don't have any real capability left. So from 2014 to 2022, we built this massive army. Well, that army got destroyed in the early part of the war last year. And then so Ukraine hurriedly fielded this other army and they launched it at places like Kherson. Uh, and that was largely annihilated. So now they've had press gangs, you know, running around for months, basically snatching people off the street. Um, there was a, I think it was the Times of London had a, 
a story a, a month or so ago about morale is high. And right beneath that headline or that subtitle was a picture of an old man in a trench. Like how high can morale be? You're forcing elderly people, you know, into the meat grinder, into trenches. So no, their military capability is severely degraded. So what, what people have to understand is they're, they're trying to engage in basically combined arms maneuver, combined arms warfare. So there's infantry, tanks, uh, artillery, they have to synchronize all those things. That's difficult. That's difficult for the best armies. That's difficult for professional armies. And Ukraine really doesn't have one anymore. It's yeah. all been, you know, worn down. So what on earth are these poor people supposed to do? I mean, they're going to be, excuse me. So like Russia has built tremendous uh, defenses. I mean, they have this massive trench. Even. I mean, it's all fortified. Russia has tremendous overbatch in firepower like way more artillery, way better artillery. And then they can even use their bombers uh, to fire air launch cruise missiles without ever getting in range of the Ukrainian air defenses. And then they have missile subs and missile boats that can fire from both the Black and Caspian Seas, all in concert with uh, the bombers that can fire um, cruise missiles and you know hypersonics and things like that. So basically you've got this very fortified Russian defense line with a tremendous amount of infantry, very well supplied. Directly behind them, you have way more artillery than the Ukrainians are going to have. And then behind them, you have these over the horizon systems, like all of these cruise missiles, uh, you know, like what we saw the past uh, several nights over the past week, where they're just methodically destroying both air defense, supplies, headquarters. I mean, maybe the Ukrainians might be able to mount some kind of operation, but it isn't going to amount to much. Yeah. And then, Talking about like the state of the Ukrainian army too, I think I saw a headline earlier this week or last week where strategically they're a bit inept as well, where we're sending a bunch of weapons, the U.S. and other countries, and apparently they warehoused all the weapons in one spot. Russia identified it and completely destroyed their, their weapons depot. Yeah, I mean, some of that is legitimately difficult because the front... Um, Ukraine's a very large country and the front is very long, but there are only so many ways to get to the places where they would need to unleash these weapons. And at some point, there would have to be some consolidation closer to the front. And maybe that can happen when you aren't overmatched so heavily. But the Russians watch all of this. It's not just through satellites or signals intercepts. They have people on the ground who are feeding them intelligence. I mean, of course they know where this stuff is. And they're very patiently, very deliberately destroying all those things. And uh, there, I can't imagine there's much left of Ukrainian air defense. So at some right now, most of what we've seen has been like stand the standoff use of air power, right? They they release their weapons before they're really within range. Um, but at some point, likely not to in the, the distant future, they're going to be able to more or less dominate the skies. And I just I don't see a, a, a chance in hell for anything that Ukraine wants to do. And there seems I, I can think of no good reason why this slaughter has to continue. I mean, they've lost the better part of a generation of young men and they're going to lose their sovereignty. And for what? I mean, the, I, I'm not uh, pro-Russian or, or anti-Ukrainian or any of that. I, I'm very fond of that entire part of the world. And this slaughter is senseless. Yeah. Just utterly senseless. Yeah. And going back to something you mentioned earlier, which is key, uh, Ukraine has signaled that they'd like to come to the table to find peace to stop uh, just sending people uh, to the slaughterhouse. And I, I think a signal, 
toward that direction was Zelensky picking up the phone and calling G uh, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, what, like, what is happening? Is like the U.S. and the Allies basically saying no? Uh, keep going. Well, I, I want to be very clear that um, some of this is supposition because clearly, you know, I'm not on the phone calls and I don't have hard information. But my general take is everybody sees the writing on the wall. Washington is looking to distance itself. Ukraine is looking for a way out, but there are still all these other pressures. I mean, sometimes in all throughout history, a lot of these tragedies continue to unfold simply because of inertia. I mean, there's so many pieces in play and emotion. Um, yeah, I, I think that he has to, Zelensky has to be looking for a way out, uh, but whether he pursues one or says so publicly, I have no idea. I think the U.S., like I said, is conditioning the public that it's not going to go well. You know, and, and fingers crossed that uh, some of the more uh, deranged leaders in, in our country don't try to provoke some kind of intervention. Because we've, we've heard for many months, even from people like uh, retired General Petraeus, that, oh, well, there should be a Western intervention. Um, when I, I wrote a piece called uh, that I titled Amateur Hour Armageddon, and I did that because as soon as the war started, there's all this... Uh, talk about escalation and the potential of nuclear war, and, and understandably so. But I hadn't heard anybody explain in very specific military terms how we could get there. How do we get there from uh, from here? Not that we want to, but how, how might it unfold? And so I explained it, and it's with essentially a Western intervention that then goes in and has to suppress Russian air defenses or attempt to. And at that point, the Russians have no way of knowing, is this operation limited to the battlefield here in, in Ukraine? Or is it part of a broader move? And there's a lot of history there going back to the Gulf War. But yeah, um, yeah. if that intervention does happen, how long does that extend this conflict? I don't think anybody can really answer questions like that because there are too many unknowns. Uh, For much of my career, I've heard people talk about escalation and how the Kremlin views escalation. You know what steps they might be willing to take. People who tell you they know what escalation looks like in the minds of Russian leaders. At, at least in, in my opinion, don't know what they're talking about. We don't know. I'm not sure that they know. Um, I mean, I'm sure they have some kind of a process or procedure, but what actually happens when things ratchet up with all that tension, I don't think anybody can reasonably say. So how long could it go on? Well, it depends if, okay, a couple of things. Um, The length of time would require uh, would depend on the amount of st- restraint each side showed. Right? Is, is there are we unleashing nuclear weapons? Is it ratcheting up right away, or are we just uh, de- con- you know, determined to fight some kind of conventional battle in Ukraine? So that's kind of the, the first high level thought. The second, um, and I wrote about this in Rubble and Rhetoric. NATO is not what it used to be uh, during the Cold War. I mean, I have worked with on NATO operations for many years, and, and I met interesting people and drank some good coffee, but it's not a fighting force. It's almost more of a club. I mean, I think of NATO much like I think of the EU. It's a source of sinecures for the credentialed, right? It's, it's jobs for cosmopolitans, that kind of thing. Um, most of the military capability comes from the U.S., and we have our own problems in that regard in terms of defense industrial base. We couldn't sustain that fight. So if we, you know, everybody looks at Russia, like, oh, is Russia going to escalate if there's some kind of intervention? Are we going to escalate? We don't have the forces. We don't have the materiel. Uh, I don't think we have the public support for any kind of war like that. I mean, it's, there's not a whole lot backing us up. 
And so NATO used to be this really massive, very powerful military force. I mean, the West German army right up until the end was just fierce, but it's not like that. It hasn't been like that in a long time. They got rid of their militaries and essentially we provide their security. They reinvested that money in basically in social welfare programs. Uh, so most European militaries are almost token forces. And I don't, I've worked with many, if not most of them. I don't mean this as an insult to the individuals. I've met very competent soldiers from all these armies, but there aren't that many of them and they don't have the stuff they need to fight. So, you know, this intervention, I don't even understand how it would happen without some kind of escalation on our side. Yeah. We don't have the forces. Just it's broken. We, we put the 101st airborne over there as, as it's supposed to look like it's some bulwark against a massive uh, mechanized force. Now I've worked with the 101st a lot. Uh, it's a capable unit, but it's a light infantry unit. It would get ripped to shreds. You know, like we don't have the numbers. We don't have the right kind of people. We don't have the production to sustain that kind of war. We don't have, uh, the forward deployed forces, the forward deployed uh, materiel. We don't train to deploy directly into that kind of environment. And if we were to start doing that, Russia could then, uh, their over the horizon systems can target much of NATO as it is. So where would we have a staging area to even get started? Like when, when, you start, when you start backing out, then Russia, like it relies on the U.S. shipping over a lot of stuff by sea or air. Uh, again, we don't have all the stuff we would need, but let's just assume for a moment we do. Russia can contest those sea and airlines. They have fantastic submarines that can sink ships. They have planes that can shoot down ours. They have missiles. So from start to finish, we no longer have this sort of fold a gap uh, NATO scenario in which the, the European allies hold on as long as they can. And then the U.S. starts reinforcing and we fight this conventional war against the Soviets that hopefully doesn't go nuclear. It's, it's nothing like that. I mean, NATO militaries in Europe are, are small and, and don't have any of the capabilities. And there's also a loss of know-how. I mean, like I said, these combined arms maneuver, uh, combined arms operations are very difficult. They have to be practiced a lot. And even then, you know, we mess it up all the time. It's, it's not easy stuff to make that many people work in concert over a broad area. And uh, they really haven't been doing any of that. They've just been plugging in in small numbers with boutique capabilities to all of our operations over the past 20 years. To, to you know Afghanistan and such, yeah, yeah. and that's the really worrying thing, particularly about the situation here in the United States economically. It's historically mm-hmm. when you have economic trouble at home, you try to create distraction, and war is one of the first distractions that is sure. that is pulled out of the toolbox, and that uh, that's what worries me right now is that we have this banking crisis unfolding. We have. Mm-hmm the potential of recession on the horizon we're going into an election year and is the situation in Ukraine and Russia used as a political tool to either distract from the uh, very fragile economy or to drum support up for a president heading into an election season. I think those are all very valid concerns. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, now, look, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I have no crystal ball, but I can talk about, you know, capabilities of what it would take to do certain things and the things that we are claiming we can do and perhaps even want to do, we cannot back up. And that's just, just with looking at, you know, intervention in Ukraine or even just continuing to supply the Ukrainians. 
Um, and then you bring, you know, Taiwan or China into the picture and it's just, it's all fantasy land nonsense. We, we are not positioned to do all these things that many people are demanding we do. And it's like, we could put aside for a moment whether we should do these things. I mean, I, I don't think we should, but we could even put that question aside for a moment and say, can we? Not, not should we, but can we even pull these things off? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, when you look back at the last 20 years of America's involvement in wars, particularly Afghanistan, Iraq, which you dealt a lot with, like it, it seems, I don't know, personally, I'm 31 years old, so I was 10 when 9-11 happened, teenager uh, to young man when Afghanistan and Iraq was going on, and I don't know, personally, I'm a bit uh, jaded and disenchanted by the whole U.S. war machine, and so am I. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like they've been very successful for most of my life, and uh, starting a war with Russia would seems like a terrible decision like it's almost like end of empire stuff where getting sloppy expanding your army not really being as successful as you have in the past and using the hammer as a way to imbue force in the world where it's really not going to pay off in the long run i I think that's a reasonable assessment um we need to get back in touch with uh, what these institutions actually mean look i'm not a pacifist the world's a, a bad place, and, and at times violence is the answer. We need uh, an effective military. We need security services, but they have to be used for what they are, and they have to be restrained. One of the first things I learned from my drill sergeant in basic training was that the Army had two purposes, to kill people and to break things. If you weren't doing those two things, you were doing something to enable others to do those two things. Now, that may sound callous, particularly with uh, contemporary sensibilities, but it's absolutely true. And so if you're going to employ the military, understand that what you're doing is killing people and breaking things. And if you don't want to do that, then the military ought not be used as a tool with which to achieve foreign policy objectives, which is exactly what happened. I'm I'm writing another series right now about uh, what I consider to be the the, the impending demise of, of NATO. And it talks about the transition from a defensive alliance to an offensive alliance. And uh, I'm sorry, was it your question? Nope. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, the, there was a policy debate um, within the White House, basically after the collapse of the, the after the end of the Cold War, and so Clinton comes in and he really doesn't have any foreign policy chops. That's one of the big dings against him at the time, where it was, and so there's this sort of debate, and we can maybe put some faces on it. There's Madeleine Albright who says we're the indispensable nation and we need, we have this massive military force and why can't we use it for good? And then you have people like Colin Powell who said, you know, whose experiences were rooted in Vietnam and, you know, he didn't want to go that route. Well, we know which camp won out, you know, it was the Albright camp and it, it happened in Bosnia and, uh, and, and in Kosovo. And then as it continued into, um, Afghanistan, I mean, th- there's a huge stretch of that war, nearly half of it, that was completely aimless. I mean, I, I don't, uh, I'm not saying the rest of it was productive. After the initial months, that there wasn't much uh, productive activity or fighting going on. But there was a whole section of that war that was just completely aimless. We didn't really even have a policy. When Obama came in and uh, they settled on the surge, it was uh, basically a, a political necessity, right? He got elected as the guy who uh, 
uh, was saying we're going to we're going to undo these bad things that the Bush administration did. We're going to end these wars. And so his basic plan was, well, re-election is 2012. So by 2011, uh, we're going to wind down. And so they started winding down Iraq immediately. It didn't go quite well, but they eventually got out in 2011, although we went back in. Um, and then in Iraq or in Afghanistan, you know, they settled on this whole like pseudoscientific counterinsurgency strategy that was just nuts. I mean, I was there. I went through the counterinsurgency academy in Kabul and listened to all this. And it was uh, a, a lot of it just didn't make any damn sense. And, and considering that, you know, we weren't there to kill people and break things, all of a sudden we're there to try to do something very different. And it just dragged on and on. Um, yeah. And as somebody who spent many years of your life in both those wars, like how do you feel personally about the pullout of Afghanistan and looking back on the last 20 years? Yeah. Um, the, well, the, well, initially, of course, I, I supported the war in Afghanistan. I mean, 9-11 was a, a big moment. And but the but by the time uh, the Iraq War was winding, uh, get, getting ready to kick off, I thought it was a bad idea from the start. Uh, and I only went over there once, and it was for a, a particular, a specific mission. And then I got back out of the country. Um, so I don't think I think Iraq. I mean, there's I don't understand any redeeming quality from what we did there. So I think that was just a mistake altogether. I think uh, in Afghanistan, I really don't see anything wrong if we're attacked with going in and killing people and breaking things, as long as we're directing it appropriately. But by by the spring of twenty of two thousand two, we've basically taken most of the Al Qaeda. We basically killed, captured, or caused to flee most Al Qaeda operatives in the country. And of course, uh, Osama bin Laden fled across the border um, as well. And so by the time like early 03 rolls around, there's a lot of like mopping up operations, right? There, there are a lot of operations that are driven by reports of Al-Qaeda and Taliban, but with dwindling evidence of their presence and sometimes none at all. So by that point, you know, we're basically getting played by Afghans who are paying us or who are receiving money saying, oh yeah, Al-Qaeda is over there. I mean, I remember when I studied uh, Dari and one of the first uh, jokes we were making was, um, you know, everything was Al-Qaeda's fault. Like, you can't find your pencil. Ooh, maybe Al-Qaeda took your pencil. Like, that's how farcical it started to get after the initial months, and particularly after the first year, year and a half. Uh, but we stayed on. So in terms, I mean, I, I think we should have left then. Um, in terms of the the pullout and the way it went, yeah, that, that caused some turbulence for me personally. I mean, we, we should have gotten out of there much sooner, but good Lord, did it need to be a fiasco? Do yeah. we need to arm the Taliban with $90 billion worth of weapons? Or We relied on our enemy of 20 years to provide perimeter security to cover our withdrawal. I mean, you can't make that kind of stuff up. We left our ally. We didn't partic work particularly well with our allies. And, you know, the Brits complained about it openly, about uh, it was a sort of like an every man for himself kind of thing. I mean, it was completely inept. Yeah. Didn't, didn't need to go that way. I mean, again, should have been out of there many years before then. But, you know, you, you are where you are and you have to deal with the situation that you have. There was no way, no reason for it to go that way. Um, and I did some videos for a consulting network I belong to called Polygage. And so basically this is July of 21. And, and these are on my website. It was, it was right after 
uh, Biden had come out and said, nope, the Afghans can hold, right? You know, we've built up an Air Force, we've done all this. And the same thing from the Pentagon and the State Department and everyone else. So I did a video explaining precisely how they were wrong, how they were wrong, how the Afghan, the Taliban was going to retake the whole country. I explained how they were already in the process of retaking the country. Basically, the only places that where the this sort of fictitious government of Afghanistan existed was in a handful of major populated areas, and you basically had to fly between them because all the hinterlands in between were controlled by insurgents. So I did that video shortly after they said everything was going to be okay. And a month later, the Taliban retake the whole country. Um, and then, if you remember, there was this uh, brief flurry of interest and compassion for the yeah, Afghans, right? For, for the girls and for all sorts of people. Like, we're not going to abandon you. We're going to have all of this international funding and everything's going to be okay. So I immediately did a video there kind of dispelling that nonsense. You know, do, if you recall, there were people talking about Taliban 2.0 as if there's this new, very sophisticated version of the Taliban, you know, as if 20 years of warfare had made them more cosmopolitan. I mean, it was completely ridiculous. So I made a, a second follow-up video, basically talking about this Taliban 2.0 stuff was nonsense. The international community is going to drop Afghanistan as soon as possible, which is exactly what they did. Um, and now Afghanistan is facing famine and it's basically not even in the news. Uh, the threat of widespread famine. For a country that's already horrendously poor and abused as it's yeah so i i mean between yeah it's very disconcerting and again emblematic of like late stage dying empire stuff which is extremely hard to stomach as an american citizen with a young family trying to yeah. uh, absolutely i have one too yeah yeah and it's and bringing it back to like Russia, Ukraine, like you mentioned, like put aside whether or not we should engage in direct conflict with them. But if we were to, could we actually be successful? And what you're saying is likely not, we're not prepared. And so let's play that, um, that hypothetical, like if we did and we lost, like what does that mean for the state of the geopolitical landscape? Because as we're seeing now, we cut them off from swift it seems like russia china and other BRICS countries are teaming up to completely sever their economies mm -hmm. off from the u.s dollar system to the best of their abilities and it seems like they're preparing for uh, a world in which they are the dominant economies dominant militaries um, <clears throat> and the u.s is sort of sitting here like oh no that's not going to happen but it, it seems very plausible that they could become dominant forces in the world if we continue to screw this up. Well, whether they become dominant, um, perhaps, I don't know. But I'd say the, the first thing they're trying to do is insulate themselves from, from our capabilities, right? Whether they're trying to set up a system that rivals and ultimately overtakes ours, that's secondary. What they need to do initially, and it's something that Russia has been engaged in for some time, is coming up with ways to make themselves less vulnerable and ultimately not vulnerable to our manipulation of the financial system, to all sorts of things like that. So right now, that's um, it's more the initial stages are more defensive in nature. We have to like Lavrov gave a speech uh, last year, and he basically said, to, "Never again. We we are not going to allow ourselves to be dependent upon you in ways that allow you to manipulate us like this." So I think the stages we're seeing now 
are those stages and some of the early relationships necessary to build the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, that's why I like to focus a lot on Bitcoin or my whole career on Bitcoin is because I do think a lot of the issues that we're talking about today stem from the fact that the U S feels the need to preserve its status as the world reserve currency maintainer. And I view Bitcoin as in a political monetary network that sort of takes that power away from the U S and doesn't give it to anybody else. And it sort of mm-hmm. levels the playing field in terms of the global monetary system where we're not really forced to project power militarily to protect this monetary system. And everybody is just forced to work within this open network and the rules set forth by that and hopefully get along peacefully because the, monetary network can't be weaponized and you're not incentivized to protect the petrodollar uh, in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that'd be wonderful. Uh, the, the big hurdle, of course, is that the people who tend to gravitate toward positions of power uh, are the kinds of people who aren't interested in creating that kind of uh, equilibrium or safety, right? I mean, this we're in this problem increasingly over the past few decades in particular, because the people in power want to be able to use every lever they can. And we've gotten to the point, it used to be that maybe they did it a little more um, deftly or with a little more restraint, a little more focused. But now it's just entirely, uh, you know, every ham-handed attempt to smack down anything that isn't within the existing order. Yeah. That's the other, it's extremely sloppy. Everything. Yeah. They don't even lie well. Even the lies don't make sense. Um, Yeah. That's uh, my, when you wrote me and you said we were going to talk geopolitics, I, I had this, uh, you know, I wanted to explain that I don't have, I'm not a theorist. I don't have some grand uh, unifying theory of geopolitics, but my, my focus, uh, which is a bit more narrow than that, is based on the following thesis, that we're, we are still led by the architects and the administrators of a failed worldview, and all their power rests in perpetuating all the systems that we now see under threat and in some cases collapsing. So what do people like that do? Well, they don't say, ah, we made a huge mistake. Let's reconfigure the entire power structure and bring in new people. They're going to fight harder as things get more difficult. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of the level of government kind of surveillance of its own people that we've seen in our country is something that I just couldn't have imagined in the 80s or the 90s. Uh, not that the government didn't um, have means to do that, but that there's just this widespread lawless surveillance state. Um, They're not going to give that up peacefully. So uh, turbulence ahead. Yeah. Yeah, The Patriot Act and now with the Restrict Act on the table, it seems like Patriot Act 2.0. And absolutely. I know you're, you just mentioned like, you you don't want to like, you don't have like, vast theories of what the perfect solution is to this problem. But if you did with that in mind, um, what advice would you give to the government to do to either quell the, the situation in Ukraine and set us, uh, military policy, like on the right path to, to sort of clean things up and hopefully bring more peace to the world instead of trying to smash everything. Well, several things. I mean, the, the current fighting would need to, to cease. And, and we'd have to accept that that means Russia is going to win. It's a question of how much more destruction and death there's going to be. 
So just accept it and achieve peace. But uh, the, the broader perspective, though, this, this schema by which we are Europe's protector, uh, it has to change. Europe has to find its own way. I think there are a lot of problems with the, the EU. Uh, I'm not real bullish on its long-term prospects, uh, nor on NATO. Uh, like I said, I'm writing a series about what I think is the demise of NATO. So they have to find their own way. And I think we forget that Europe is a pretty, it's been a pretty unstable place over, over time. And so this intense push to, to, to expand the union, the EU, and to have an gr ever greater union, at least ostensibly, is for the purpose of kind of forestalling the kind of violence that had plagued the continent for you know, millennia. Um, they need to come to terms with their reality. The, one of the things being that union is, is too broad and it doesn't, there is no common tie that binds. It used to be that most of the Central and, and Eastern European nations wanted to be in the EU basically to be brought into the first world. It, there was a huge economic incentive. You know, nobody wants to live in the land that time forgot. You know, you see this, this, um, you see your neighbors prospering and having other opportunities by joining this. Of course you do. Well, how attractive is that going to be in the future with uh, the economic degradation ongoing in Europe, with the deindustrialization that's slowly underway? I mean, Germany, other countries too, but Germany in particular, you know, their whole approach was built on uh, cheap energy that gave them, you know, a competitive edge in terms of pricing because everybody likes German quality, but quality costs. But with that cheap energy, they were able to to keep it up. But that's gone. So what I think about it, and I'm kind of a visual person. So when I'm writing or thinking, there's usually some visualization I'm trying to explain. And when I think about the deindustrialization process in Europe, I see like a boat that's becoming unmoored from the pier. Right. Mm -hmm. And when it initially happens, the people are still right there. It doesn't it doesn't seem like a problem. Oh, no, I could even jump off back onto the pier. But then it slowly starts to drift off. And that's where the dissonance really starts to take over. Like, oh, well, it's right there, but I can't quite reach it. And then it just keeps shifting and shifting, you know, more, more adrift. And I, I think that's what we're going to see. I mean, what I don't have a background in economics or finance, but just to, from a broad perspective, if their whole industrial uh, theory was based on this cheap energy and, and they can't get it anymore, I don't understand what they do. I don't understand how they kind of return to the sort of uh, prominence and um, th that they had before in that regard. What's the alternative? I mean, we see not only the prices of energy going higher, we see these harebrained uh, policies from governments when you're shutting down you know, their existing sources of energy and for, for more renewables. So how attractive is the EU going to be when this plays out? Also, there's a oh, good. I was going to say, I mean, Germ Germany is the economic powerhouse of Europe. And like you yep. mentioned, it's, it's been mind boggling how they just shot themselves in the head with this transition away from nuclear mm -hmm. and reliable coal towards unreliable wind and solar. Like it doesn't make any sense. No, it's, it's cult-like, um, and it's really a shame because when I say that Europe needs to find its own way, Germany needs to lead that process. They are the continental power. Sure, Poland has, has gotten uh, you know, a lot wealthier, and, and they have a you know, much larger military in the past uh, couple of decades, but Germany needs to, to chart a course here. And I don't know, what does 
Germany look like? Like, for, for example, over the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, um, maybe not quite that long, you know, we've seen this resurgence of populism and understandably so people are angry at the elite. And so they're looking for something different. And in, I, I pay attention to a lot of European media, particularly around elections. And the story was always the same. Oh, my God, you know, these these populist barbarians are at the gate and we have to fight to keep them out or or who knows, you know, we'll lose our democracy. And then when the establishment candidates win, sometimes not by all that much, they declare like, you know, emergency over. Well, all those people who were motivated to support the populace in the first place, one, they're still there. And two, now they have ever more reason to go that way. So give this a couple of election cycles, even if it takes that long of the deindustrialization, of the anger over the war, of people who had lived very comfortable, uh, prosperous lives, suddenly being much less comfortable and prosperous and worried about war coming to their doorstep. I don't think that bodes well for the union. Um, and so there has to be some kind of new accommodation for Europe, whether it's a rapprochement with Russia and then they kind of bring in the gas again. I don't know. It's a little too far out. But for Europe, I think that's the case. For the U.S., um, you know, it's interesting that when we used to be have a Department of War and not a Department of Defense, the, the Department of War was more focused on actual defense of the country. And then when we created the Department of Defense, it was basically conducting war abroad. So, you know, all of that nonsense has to stop. There are a lot of myths propagated about why we need to be in different places. And if we pull out, everything's going to go to hell. Uh, there'll certainly be a change if the U.S. isn't there. Um, but I think allowing some kind of equilibrium to establish in a lot of these places and refocusing the U.S. Uh, military on, on defending the country, territorial defense. Now, we're blessed, of course. We have oceans. Uh, we have peaceful neighbors to the north. Um, but there are some other security problems that we just overlook. Uh, I'm not suggesting we need to go to war with Mexico, but people completely underestimate the extent of the cartel violence. Um, I mean, here in, in my town in Charlottesville, there's this crazy story I just read yesterday. Uh, there was a shooting, I think, last year uh, or perhaps earlier this year. And what we found out was uh, this fellow who lived in Maryland, his wife had been kidnapped in Texas. And he and the kidnappers agreed to meet here in my town. And then there ended up being a gunfight and he killed the people. And we were like, what the hell is this? Well, it's all related to uh, an open border and to cartel violence and to kidnapping for ransom and all of that. And it's even come to a sleepy little Charlottesville, Virginia. So there's there's got to be some coming to terms uh, with what's going on in Mexico. And I know a lot of people tend to default to, well, we have the appetite for drugs. They have the drugs. It's always going to be like that. Well, perhaps that's true. But it doesn't mean it needs to be uh, what it presently is. There's um, cartels operating freely on both sides of the border. They're making more money now off of trafficking people than they ever did off of trafficking drugs. Um, you know, a great many of these people suffer terribly in that process. Their women and children are routinely sexually abused. So there has to be some coming to terms for the U.S. with what's going on in the South. Yeah. Um, As somebody who lives in Texas, I completely agree. Yeah. And, and, that, and also agree, I think we're sleeping on this. Like, when you talk about oh, 100%. fentanyl and overdoses being, I think, the number one killer in the United States right now for a particular segment uh, of the population and particular age group. Like, mm -hmm. There is, and it almost seems like a reverse opium war because, from what I can tell, it looks like the cartels have teamed up with China to 
get the fentanyl into the country. And it's just sure. slowly, I mean, right outside this wall right here on sixth and Congress, you, you see the open drug markets like right on the corner. Like, no, no. Yeah. I haven't been to Austin in quite some time. There were no, no open air markets when I was there. That's sad to hear. It really is. That's yeah. sad. It's everywhere now. Yeah. And so like as an American, as a Patriot who served your country, like, do you think we have a chance to get back on the right track? I do. Um, I think there's some kind of domestic cataclysm that will occur or that we have to go through. A part of it, of course, is this economic degradation that we're talking about. Um, you know, I, I'm not a, I don't have a background in finance or economics, so this is part uh, unqualified opinion and part unsatisfied curiosity. But when I look at all the analyses of uh, various aspects of the market, right, the bond market, the housing market, all these things, I feel like nobody, uh, there, there's no real overarching, uh, no ability to really have an overarching analysis. Sort of like how I said about geopolitics. I mean, I don't think those analytical frameworks really work too well. But if I had to put my money on it, I'd put my money on some kind of calamity. And once that happens economically, um, everything else is impacted. And, and, you know, we have serious social problems. You know, we have the, the crime in the cities and racial division and all sorts of other things. So I think there's going to be some kind of confluence of those things Yeah, that uh, is cataclysmic or we, I think we have a rough patch to go through, but I don't think all is lost. And, um, yeah, the, the professor out of uh, Vienna who I follow, uh, he, he said something that I like. He said, you know, America has many sources of renewal. And I do believe that. And he was talking about how in a lot of places, or like I would say in Russia, you know, a huge part of the overall population lives in Moscow. And a lot of the power is focused in Moscow. Well, in the U.S., we have many cities and we have, you know, arable land and all of that. So I think in the end, there are many, like he said, many sources of renewal. I think that's the way I would put it. The, the ingredients are there when we sort through whatever's coming our way for us to uh, rebuild. Agreed. I'm an eternal optimist. I do think we will write the ship. I do think we I are going to go through a calamity. I think it's actually happening right now. Um, sure. With the yes. the banking system, the debt ceiling, um, it, uh, nobody's going to be buying our treasuries moving forward. The economic calamity, I think we're in the middle of it. And most people just don't realize it yet. Um, Absolutely. But yeah. again, that's why I focus on Bitcoin too, because I think that's an incredible source of renewal for the United States if they're the political politicians and uh, the federal government is willing to allow us to just build the network out here in the United States in our little part of the world. Um, Bitcoin, the network aligns very tightly with the ideals. This country was founded on free speech, sound money, um, mm -hmm. and the ability to associate with who you want to. Um, so sure. It's an open peer to peer protocol. It has all those. And then from an energy perspective, we're shooting ourselves in the foot here to a certain extent in Bitcoin mining as an industry, even though it's uh, picked on a lot by the Elizabeth Warrens of the world and the New York times of the world and uh, mm -hmm. very much involved in the industry. And I see it up close and personal. It does strengthen our energy systems, our grid systems. It allows us to uh, take advantage of stranded energy sources like stranded natural gas wells or mm -hmm. flared gas. Like there, there is so much opportunity 
for renewal via Bitcoin, whether it be at the application layer, the financial layer, or the physical layer with the mining industry. And that's why I have this podcast. That's why I write my newsletter. That's why I invest in the space because I think Bitcoin is the ball that we can run with and begin to rebuild a stronger America on strong financial footing with sound money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, like J- uh, Washington said, you know, he, he didn't want us uh, to have all of these foreign entanglements, but he, he wanted the U.S. to be an engine of prosperity. And, and I think at some point we could get back to that model whereby uh, we, we aren't in, <laughs> invading other countries or we aren't using our diplomats and our business uh, power to basically lecture and coerce them, but we could be an engine of prosperity and who knows, fingers crossed, maybe even a, an example of good governance, but yeah. we are not there. <laughs> yeah. And the, I mean, one of my theories is that, and we saw begin to take play in COVID during the lockdowns and all that. It's just a return to individual states asserting their autonomy from the federal government, which I'm very so. bullish on. And I, I think is the cleanest way out uh, of the calamity is just the state standing up, say, Hey, federal government, uh, you put us in a pretty bad situation. We're not going to listen to what you're saying. We're going to, we're going to run things our way and thank you, but no, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the mechanism's already there in the, in the constitution. It's just an issue of us actually following it. Yeah. The political will. (laughs) So how do we get this, this fire in the bellies of the silent, silent majority, if you will, because you, you can tell, I mean, at least I can, I won't speak for you, but I can tell there are many people who are sensible, who are just good people who want to raise families, work hard, put food on the table, enjoy time with family and friends. They, they know something's off, not only off, but terribly off. And yeah, they're looking for a solution and typically they go to the government and say, Hey, you need to fix this, but I don't think that's the way out. How do we engender a sense of urgency in the silent majority to speak up and seek mm-hmm. options that, that lead to peace internationally and then economic strength here at home? Um, well, I definitely agree that there's a silent majority that feels that way, but, uh, it, typically, it's the case that a majority, silent or otherwise, doesn't get the, the fire in their belly. It's usually, you know, a smaller percentage of the population that, that are the actors and the catalysts. And, you know, you've got, then they have the people they are against. And in the middle, you just have this sort of public that wants to go about its life. Um, I think we're seeing some of the early stages of it with people taking back school boards, uh, with people focused on local elections. Um people focused on, you know, becoming precinct committee men and women and all sorts of things down at that local level. Uh, so I think it's underway. Um, there's just some sort of a tipping point. Um, I, I think a lot of what will propel us in that direction is going to result from this uh, kind of calamity that we're discussing. Right now, the people who are active are the people who are inclined to be active. Uh, there'll come a time, I think, when other people don't really have much of a choice because things are going so poorly. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. 
get Bitcoin before you need it. Is what we say. <laughs> that. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, in another topic we haven't even touched on, you mentioned uh, in the beginning of the discussion that you spent some time in Taiwan. But that's another thing sure. uh, externally, sure. internationally. That seems to be bubbling up. Um, there's a lot of speculation that China would like to take over Taiwan. Uh, we just watched them take Hong Kong in 2019, take Hong Kong back. Um, we had John Bolton over in Taiwan a couple of weeks ago yeah. you know, with their leaders. What What is your perspective on Taiwan? What's going on there? I'm admittedly ignorant to the Thai, Taiwan situation outside of the fact that uh, TSMC is there and they create a lot of the chips, particularly the chips I use to mine Bitcoin. But outside of that, I'm, I'm a bit ignorant to the situation yeah. over there. Okay. Um, where to start? So it's important to remember right off the bat that the people on the island of Taiwan, Formosa, are Chinese, right? They're, they're a different, they've been separate from the mainland for quite some time, for decades. But culturally, linguistically, they're almost they're, they're Chinese. They're mostly Han Chinese. So when we talk about China, like taking this or taking that, we have to understand that although uh, Taiwan and Ukraine are different in some ways, they're similar and, and really important ones. China's not going to lose Taiwan, like period. Just like how Russia's not going to lose Ukraine. It's too close. It's too near and dear. It's 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 too important to them. So the policy for a very long time has been eventual but peaceful reunification. China does not want to attack or invade Taiwan. They don't want to destroy the place. They just want to pull it back under their dominion. Now, they don't want to go to war, but they certainly will if things push them in the direction of a military operation being the only way to achieve that reunification. Um, so the U.S. policy for a very long time has been uh, strategic ambiguity. Meaning we're not going to say if we're going to support Taiwan in the event of a war, we're just going to leave it, the possibility on the table, Beijing, you know, maybe we will, maybe we won't. So stay off, so back off, right? Well, a lot of things have changed. If you go back, we used to recognize Taiwan as a country. We do not. Our leaders talk about Taiwan. It is not a formally recognized country. Uh, we switched our recognition from Taipei to Beijing uh, in the early 70s when Nixon was trying to kind of play China against the Soviet Union, right? And in that time, of course, we've made China the, the world's factory. They've become much wealthier. They've created, they have a lot more, um, it, not just uh, economic clout, but international clout. They've been on this really years-long campaign of kind of co convincing and coercing other countries to not recognize Taiwan. I forget what the exact number is right now, but it's I don't know, 12 or 13 countries recognize Taiwan, and they're usually in like Africa and the Caribbean, places like that. So there's, there, China is using a whole bunch of levers that it, to really constrain Taiwan's options and to say, basically, you're going to come back home. It can be the Hong Kong model, the Macau model, but basically we're not losing Taiwan. They have the diplomatic uh, lever. There's also just people underestimate. They talk like these are uh, two fortresses. You know, one's about to do battle with the other. Uh, at least when I was in, uh, going back and forth to Taiwan, the greatest number of flights per day were the mainland China. The the business ties are there. The cultural ties, the linguistic ties. I'm not saying the two people are entirely the same, but they're um, incredibly similar. And so, 
like when Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan uh, during the Civil War, he took most of the artifacts that are important to the Chinese uh, civilization. So the museum that all the Chinese go to to see their own history is in Taipei. They fly over there. So we need to realize that these are real people who have an interest in working together. There's an election coming up next year, and the party uh, that might win could push more in the direction of reunification. It's a possibility. Uh, it's not that China has to conduct a military assault, uh, though it could, but it's it's a possibility. So on the <clears throat> a couple of important things on that topic. It's I am aware of the fact that the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army, hasn't really fought anyone in a long time. There are probably some qualitative issues there. I'm aware that uh, amphibious operations are extremely difficult under the best of circumstances, and Taiwan does not present favorable circumstances for such an operation. Even so, uh, my view, uh, and I know this uh, probably aggravates a lot of former colleagues, is that if China wants to take the island, they'll take the island. I mean, we have tremendous problems. I mentioned the defense industrial base that can't support the war in Ukraine. How on earth is it going to support a war on the other side of the Pacific? Like people have to stop and think in a really practical way what that would mean. We'd have to put the entire country on a war footing. We'd have to invoke the Defense Production Act, basically take civilian factories and turn them into munitions factories, sort of like how Detroit was producing bombers and tanks throughout World War II, right? We'd have to do that. Well, there are lots of problems. One problem is we don't have that many factories anymore to convert. Another problem is does the public want to go on a war footing? You know, we've already had this monumental spending for COVID and all the rest of it. Are we really going to spend many times that in an inflationary debt-ridden environment to put the country on a war footing? Another problem, even if we were to do all of that, it would take a long time to build up the material and the capabilities we would need to even initiate such a conflict, much less to sustain one, because we don't know how long it could last. You know, another point is uh, simply geography. Because of Hawaii, Alaska, Guam, the, the West Coast, our leaders uh, say kind of proudly like, oh, we are a Pacific power. Well, sort of <laughs> in a certain part of the Pacific. I mean, we are not an East Asia power. It's a pretty we big have, ocean. Yeah. We have a tremendous amount of influence in certain parts of East Asia, but that's not where our power resides. So the idea that we're going to suddenly like, we, we don't, even, again, this whole divide between uh, should and, and could, let's put aside the should, which obviously I don't think we should push any kind of war there. Um, could we? Well, how do we get there? Are we stopping Ukraine because we're running out of munitions? Are we going to mobilize the entire country and turn it into a big munitions factory? Are we going to suddenly uh, conscript or grow our military? I mean, a lot of people, uh, th there was an article recently in Foreign Policy uh, about how we need to do more to deter China and Russia. And a lot of people online kind of lost their minds and said, this is crazy. You know, these, these Americans are talking about basically standing up to China and Russia. And, and if we need to, you know, in whatever ways we need to. Well, what I think people don't understand is that's par for the course in the defense establishment. You know, the thing people were going crazy over this article. I had heard every argument in that entire article many times for many years. You know, it's not the only view in, in D.C. and the establishment, but it's the prominent one. Like the, the assumption, the kind of knee-jerk reaction is, well, we've got to do something. You know, we've got these, they're called revisionist powers, right? Because we say that they're rewriting history, uh, you know, and, and we have to kind of stand in defense, not only of 
the, you know, these places, but of, of history, I guess. Um, these ideas are perfectly mainstream in the defense establishment and the foreign policy establishment that we have to go do something. So I ask, how? Like, sit down and explain. Because all these articles talk about what we should do, what we need to do. They're all very normative or moralistic or sometimes emotionally driven. Like, oh, well, we just have to. We have to find a way. You know, people, things like good leadership, you know, steely resolve, determination, all that stuff's important. But if we look across history, it is not the case that those attributes alone enable people to triumph against all odds. You know, the other stuff matters too, and it's typically the, the less sexy stuff that matters a great deal. So people who are pushing these policies, I, I simply have to ask, how? With what? We've already depleted things in Ukraine. We don't have the, the industrial base we used to have. We would have to convert this smaller industrial base at tremendous expense during a time of debt and inflation uh, just to produce this stuff, which would take a lot of time. What is the goal here? I mean, there's just this really, look, I understand the the, the chips are, are, are made there and, and I get the concerns about that. But what's more damaging, uh, China potentially having this reunification uh, or taking over Taiwan or a war with China? Like, you know, I've heard all these estimates. Oh, well, if we lose the chips, it's a, you know, this much of a, you know, you can take off whatever, 10, 15% of the GDP immediately or something like that. Well, that doesn't even make sense, though, because China's our biggest trading partner in the world. Right. And, like, if they take it over, it's not like they're going to stop selling chips to us. They're going to want to make that money. 100%. And that's what annoys me so much about these conversations is uh, it's it's a lot of boogeyman stuff like oh you know did you have you ever seen dr strange love do you know the big board mm-hmm. yeah i mean there's like a big board kind of approach and, and i saw it for years in government where it's like oh my god the chinese are investing here and they're doing this there well yes there is geo strategic geopolitical competition um undoubtedly that's happening but we're so intertwined not just in terms of you know manufacturing and tech and finance like, I just, I, I still think we could just buy their stuff. Um, if the one thing, yeah, I'll layer this grievance. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of uh, the China hawks in the U.S. And, and most of them are talking about, you know, great power competition and wanting to rebuild shipyards and all of this stuff. And I understand where they're coming from, though I, I don't necessarily agree. But... They never seem, with, with very few exceptions, they don't look at what's going on internally in the U.S., at counterintelligence threats or at, uh, you know, IP theft and things like that. No, look, IP theft has always occurred, but never on this scale and never with the person being looted basically saying we can't do anything about it. So th- that's kind of my big beef with the, Ch- the China hawks is, um, you know, there are plenty of public FBI reports talking about how uh, the CCP tries to coerce, uh, they'll, they'll try to get politicians earlier in their careers so that they can be useful, you know, later on. Uh, the, I forget what the, uh, the exact timing was, but uh, the director of the FBI said they have to open a new counterintelligence investigation, something like every 15 minutes. I mean, it's extraordinary. Look, I'm not anti-China and, and I certainly don't want war with China. But the people who are running around beating the war drum about the things we need to do externally don't really seem to care a whole lot about uh, you know the the leaky ship that we're that we're on at present, and so that's that's something that I never really understood. No, neither do I. Like we don't need any more war. 
when you get our house in order like uh yeah i'm a very like big I, ron, ron paul guy like let's bring oh, yeah, it home absolutely. and like okay. figure out like let's get our own house in order before we go tell other people what to do is my mindset yeah and if you there we can call them whatever we want there there are people who control the levers of power in society we can call them the elites the establishment the ruling class whatever it is but that that group of people are very you know foreign policy is sort of like this their precious jewel right? they don't really care much about what happens to large swaths of the country but this is the thing that they protect and of course there are a lot of business interests uh, interests interwoven but wresting that from them um is a, a I'm on Ron Paul's side, but it's a, yeah. it's a tremendous challenge. It's a tall order. Because this is the thing they value above, you know, they're, they're part of an international cosmopolitan class. They're not necessarily even Americans in some respects, right? They have more in common with the other international cosmopolitans than they do with someone in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, and so what is the significance of John Bolton's trip? Um, is it significant at all? Is it just him being a dick? Is it? Uh, well, I, I think he can't help but do the latter. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know the man, but yeah, he's, he's been in the public a long time. I think we can call that one. Um, I, I generally try not to read too much into individual incidents, where there, whether it's an attack, a phone call, a meeting, because there's a constant stream of them. And we're, you know, we, we were focused on trying to read into this one, and then there's another one tomorrow. But I don't think it's good. I mean, he's not there. He wasn't there, at least to my knowledge, in any official government capacity. Yeah. Is he officially associated with the government? Right now? Uh, not to my knowledge. Um, but I, I mean, I haven't checked. Could be wrong, but I don't think he is. Uh, you know, he's been out of power for some time. There is uh, some people use the term uniparty. You know, there is that just kind of establishment uh, that has certain interests. And I mean, he's a lifelong member of that. So the fact that he's not in government doesn't necessarily mean he isn't talking to the other people who are uh, or to interests that are non-governmental but powerful nonetheless. I don't really know. I mean, I don't think it's a great thing when John Bolton comes to your country. Um, yeah, there's, there's going to be a push to produce and, and to sell a, a bunch more weapons and my guess is that it has a lot to do with that. Yeah. But even when I was going there, I mean, you couldn't like clear baggage claim without tripping over defense contractors. Like, so if we're sending even more over there, it's, uh, it's kind of remarkable. Yeah. Uh, it's also tiresome. It is, you know, I, I'm not, I, I am an optimistic person by nature like you. And, uh, you know, I don't like to be a doom merchant. But my career is focused on things like Afghanistan, Iraq, Ukraine. Like, I think that accurate analysis on these topics is inherently uh, unpleasant. And so I end up being kind of this purveyor of doom, though it's, it's certainly not representative of my personality. It's not what I, and I don't do it because I like to. I do it because I think that's the accurate take. Well, it's not only accurate. It's very important because, like we mentioned like the mainstream media isn't getting this information out there. Like I think no. what you're doing is extremely important. I thank you for doing it because Thanks. people need to hear these perspectives. And when you lay it out, it seems pretty straightforward and pretty logical. Like, Hey, again, going yeah, back I'm, not to a, I'm not a melodramatic person. I mean, <laughs> I've never been accused of something like that. It's, it's usually pretty straightforward and logical. And if anything, maybe a bit dry. 
So Yeah. I mean, I really like your driving of the distinction between should we and could we, because the mainstream media and the federal government, military industrial complex is going to say should, should, should use emotion, use fear and do mm-hmm. all that to gin up support for what they want to do. Um, nobody really dives into the logistics of could we, which is extremely important because you can have all the emotion and all the morale built up that you want. But if you can't actually execute on the back end, it is not mm-hmm. a good idea. And on that note, you know, people, when it comes to war, at least people don't rise to the occasion. They revert back to their best level of training with, with very few exceptions. That's not the story we hear in the movies. You know, it's, it's of something heroic, just sort of erupting out of someone. People revert back to their best level of training. Do we train to do any of these things that we're currently talking about doing? Do we train at scale for how to deploy so far away and conduct these immensely complicated operations against adversaries that are far more capable than any we've faced in decades? No, we don't. So that's the other thing to consider is, you know, we don't really practice to do any of this. There's just this assumption that, well, somewhere we have you know, in a special access program somewhere we have these super weapons or, you know, maybe the other side, they're, they're not as big and bad as, as uh, you know, maybe some people say they are, but you just have to start looking at the, the nuts and bolts of it. It's, we can't do, we can't pull these things off. It's a completely insane. We could be focusing on making the country better. And instead we're just perpetuating all of this fanatical nonsense. And it's extremely scary when you consider the, technological advancements that have been made with military technology like that adds many different variables to the calculus and if you're not training for it like how outmatched are you so on that note i've done a lot of uh, work with electronic warfare and and some analysis of it over the years Uh, just i'm going to say a little over two years ago i gave a briefing when i was still doing things with the government i gave a briefing to a very senior leader and I was talking about electronic warfare and the, the gentleman's response basically was very dismissive. It was like, when the U.S. goes to war, we take control of the entire electromagnetic spectrum, like next topic. And, you know, it's, it's hard to impress upon some of these people that this isn't 1991. Other countries, particularly China and Russia, have advanced these kind of capabilities specifically because they knew they didn't have conventional overmatch. They saw what we did in Desert Storm where we assembled this massive army and just took apart uh, Saddam's army, which was also uh, one of the largest in the world, and they got fearful. So they looked for asymmetric ways. They looked for ways to, to kind of counter that in electronic warfare, hypersonics, things like that. But you know, Russia's electronic warfare capability is extraordinarily impressive. Um, it's like th- these this two-dimensional view of them as incapable and clumsy, like that is to our detriment. It is simply not the case. There was just another article from uh, CNN today admitting that Russia can render HIMARS largely useless by uh, GPS jamming, which of course many of us knew all along. That, uh, the JDAMs, like we're we're exposing a lot of our weaknesses here and giving the other side a lot of real-world practice. Yeah. Do not underestimate the enemy. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but we do routinely, almost as a matter of policy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, it's also tiresome, and it's really like scary. It's like, gosh, we have a bunch of idiots in control right now. But we do. We really do, and we need to say it in such blunt terms. 
We absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually one of the things I say pretty often, whether it be posturing towards the federal reserve, the federal government, military industrial complex, we need to make fun of these people because going back to engendering uh, action and urgency from the silent majority, they react to comedy like it or not. Mm -hmm. And you literally just have to call these people idiots and point out how stupid they are, how idiotic their policies or their beliefs are. Like the Mm -hmm. emperor in the United States is not wearing any clothes. He's completely butt ass naked and yep. it's at the again young family i like to think i just want to work hard provide value do good things be a good person hold the door be sure. polite say thank you say please treat people with respect uh and the government's just dragging us into forced conflict and in misery with their military and economic policies yeah, they're, the, like I said, the architects and the administrators of a failed worldview, and they're dragging us along with them. Yeah. Well, Lee, again, I thank you immensely for your work. I'm very happy that Dave uh, hit me up and asked me to reach out to you because, again, I think this type of messaging and laying the situation out like you just have over the last hour and a half is extremely important. I think this is one of the more important episodes we've recorded in some time at TFTC because most people are not getting this blunt information laid out in the way that you just laid it out because um, they're being completely propagandized by the mainstream media and those who would lead you to believe that we need to save Ukraine at all costs. Um, Mm -hmm. What's most important in that phrase is all costs. Like it is going to cost us a lot if we do go down this route, whether it be with Ukraine and Russia or China and Taiwan. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad Dave uh, hooked us up. I had, a, I had a good time chatting with you, even though the subject matter is not particularly rosy. No, but hard truths need, need to be reconciled with. Where yeah. can uh, where can the freaks find out more about you, your sub stack, your consulting business? Sure. Um, my website has everything. It has articles, videos, all my social media links, and it's lee-bt.com. So L-E-E dash b is in bravo t is in tango.com um you can also just search me on twitter uh lee slusher my Substack is uh deep dive with lee slusher uh dot substack.com um so yeah hope you awesome. check it out we're gonna link to all that in the show notes freaks lee thank you again hope you have a great weekend you too thank you all right peace and love freaks Dickie.